Welcome to Kibi on Liberty. Well, Jason, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. To be you you're a you're a regular on this show. <laughs> this is your second appearance. I love being here. Uh, Jason, I'm a virgin. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 sometime we should talk about uh, one of your other passion projects, the Free State Project in yeah, New Hampshire. For sure, for sure. You're an actual New Hampshireite. That's right. Uh, living in living the, the freedom. And and according to your study, you're living in the freest state in America. That's right. And actually, we discovered this before I lived there. So <laughs> this is not a... Uh, uh, it's not self-serving. It's not self-serving. Yeah. But, you you uh, moved to the freedom as opposed to, uh, you know, not calling balls and strikes. That's so, the, right. so the science is not skewed. The just science is not skewed. So just you can propagandize that That's right. the Free State Project. Yeah, and in one of the editions, Florida actually came in number one. That's right. Uh, and, uh, you know, certainly neither one of us wants to live there. But yeah. uh, it's not a bad place for people. It's just not our preference. So I was I was uh, um, paging through the the website about freedom in the fifty states. We should say what specifically we're talking about, and this. How many times has this been published? So this is the seventh edition, and we've been working on this for about fifteen years. And Jason will tell I think he tell a little story about its origin. But just to kind of the basics is. This is a ranking of the 50 states on their regard in terms of public policies at the state and local level for freedom. And this is the most comprehensive index of freedom that's out there. We don't just study economic freedom, we also study personal freedom. So it's economic freedom, which is fiscal policy and regulatory policy. And then personal freedom or freedom from paternalism is another part of it. And it's about a third, a third, and a third. Um, but again, we were the first ones to put personal freedom in an index. And I think our measures of economic freedom are actually the most robust out there as well. We look at about 230 policy variables uh, and then look at, uh, you know, their respect for freedom. And then, you know, we call balls and strikes on who wins and who loses. Uh, and it's been a great project. But you know, I don't know, Jason, you want to talk a little bit about the origin? Because it has a cool, a little bit of a cool origin story compared to most social science projects. <laughs> I suppose so. Um, so I was a uh, political scientist at the University of at Buffalo at the time. This was 2007, I think. We were trying to yeah. figure this out exactly when it was. It might have been late 2007, early 2008. And uh, it was actually a friend of mine who suggested, you know, people need something like this that would have um, a comprehensive view of freedom at the state level. And I said, you know, that's a great idea. I can collect data. I can get tenure, <laughs> you know, do political sciencey things with it, as well as do this freedom index. And so I reached out to a bunch of policy experts and, and some other sort of sympathetic political scientists and didn't really get interest from anyone except Will, <laughs> who, was, who was at uh, Liberty Fund at the time and then uh, got a job at, as a political scientist at Texas State. And, uh, and so we, we got together and, and uh, put this study together and uh, it came out in February 2009. That was the first edition. And uh, we had data from year-end 2006. It was, um, you know, it was, uh, at the time, we, we definitely wanted to be as scientific as possible. But um, we, we kind of weighted all the variables based on kind of how important we thought they might be. And now it's improved so much. Not only have we added more variables over the editions, uh, we've gone all the way back to the year 2000 with annual data so you can look at how things have changed over time. But we also try to have an objective way of weighting these variables by looking at the dollar value to Americans of each freedom. So 
It's come a long way, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah, and I, I'm glad to be uh, around uh, both our for our launch that we did in New Hampshire a couple weeks ago with Governor Sununu, uh, and for our launch today at the Cato Institute, which is the publisher. Uh, because in 2009, when it came out, we finished it in 2008, and then I was in Afghanistan when it came out. That's right. So uh, we had this big event, or we, he, he, he had to sit in for the big event while I was uh, suffering in Kabul. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't do a, a presser in Kabul? No. It, it, I mean, I guess with Zoom technology now, maybe it would have been more uh, likely to happen. But yeah. uh, back then, it was, uh, it was hard, harder to communicate, particularly from, from Afghanistan. So it's good to, be, good to be here in the United States. Yeah. I'm glad the war is over, too, by the way. Yeah, and you mentioned this. Uh, Cato is the publisher, but both of you guys are, well, you're the president of uh, the American Institute for Economic Research, and you're some sort of senior scholar. You have a very fancy title there. <laughs> That's right. Basically, fancy title at AIER. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. An economist, you could say. Yeah. Yeah. And no, and, it's, and it really fits nicely, I think, with the offerings at, at the American Institute for Economic Research, because one of the things that we've been doing since 1933 is looking at kind of basic data uh, that is useful for everyday Americans. And this definitely fits in that. And that's one of the reasons why we do it too, because it wasn't just a social science project. It's also, hey, let's help Americans understand where there's more or less freedom so that they can make better decisions in their own lives, whether it's businesses, it's uh, legislative staff uh, in state capitals, or it's individuals who just want to vote with their feet. Yeah. that I mean, to me, that's the most interesting thing. And maybe, maybe more so since 2020, I think a lot of Americans are actually voting with their feet or at least choosing where to raise their families and, and where to build their, their careers and their lives um, mm -hmm. based on where they think they'll be free enough to, to keep a little bit of their income. And, and I, you know, I was uh, more than red-pilled. Whatever the most radical pill is, <laughs> I became quite radicalized by the lockdowns. Yeah. And mm -hmm. people that watch this show know this because I... Because I, I didn't think I lived in a country where even the worst of the states on your list would ever do things like prohibit people from crossing state borders right. or prohibit people from leaving their house or telling mm -hmm. certain people they weren't allowed to work. So I, like now these things really matter, and I think I'm not the only one that feels that way. So in a lot of ways, this is a how-to guide for just families that are saying, where do we want to live so that we can, we can not have to worry so much about this stuff. Yeah, and AIER was a leader in criticizing government policies towards COVID. Uh, and so we're very proud of that legacy because it, you know, it aged very well, the Great yeah. Barrington Declaration. And I wasn't the president there, so I give credit to my predecessor for that. But uh, you know, obviously our institution, I think, was at the forefront. And it was risky at the time, so I, I kind of give him that credit. Uh, now, there's been some good research. Uh, so Ben Powell, a, f a mutual friend of ours and uh, a board member at AIER, actually has, did some research looking at actually where places had uh, more or less stringent COVID regimes. Uh, and so that's definitely worth checking out as well. We cited in here. Uh, fortunately, a lot of these places, a lot of these policies are gone now. Yeah. Um, now, I, again, we do worry about what could happen in the future because states that were executives, you know, grasp power, shocking that that would happen, right? These are places where a lot of those things could still live on in the future. And so we should be you know, quite alert to that as uh, champions of liberty. Oh, we had we had rolling emergency orders in the District of Columbia for years after the emergency ended. And, <laughs> and our mayor just loved those powers. And yeah. um, I don't know why she actually ever gave them up. I think I think at some point 
um, the reality of the of the gutting of the city's economy probably right. forced her to. Yeah, yeah and, I, and 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 you've done a great job, I think, highlighting that in your new documentary, um, where it talks about the the kind of abuse of these. Everyone powers. is welcome. Yeah, and yeah. and that and and we have we are partners with the Buckeye Institute mm-hmm. on on an ongoing uh, litigation project. We're we're telling the story. They're right. doing the hard work, mm-hmm. which is yeah. Which no, it's great is, to see great. the kind of ecosystem, not just yeah. AIER, but Buckeye with Free the People and so forth. I mean, yeah. it's, it's awesome. But uh, you know, on the on the issue of migration, I mean, one thing that we do find, and and again, uh, I, you know, I think for lay people, they know it, right? They see it. They see the U-Haul index, right? Uh, but we are able to, you know, in a social science fashion, really show that when you control, like in statistical uh, you know, um, analysis, when you control for the things that a lot of people move for, right? Not everybody moves for liberty. I wish they, they did, right? But not everybody does. And they move for you know, different types of amenities, the ocean, mountains, you know, nice urban landscapes. Uh, they move because of cost of living, things like that. But when you control for those types of variables, freedom still matters to the decisions that people are making. Uh, and we're able to show that. And, and so uh, you might say, well, that's not that much news to people, but it is interesting to see that bear out because there's a lot of people say, well, Florida's growing because it's got great weather or great beaches or any number of things, Miami. Uh, but that's not just it. It's also the policy regime. And so on the margins, people are voting with their feet for freedom away from places that are less free. And you see that with California compared to New York. You see with, uh, sorry, uh, Florida compared to New York, California compared to Florida, Texas is growing. And and again, Texas isn't the most free state. It's actually, I think, number 17 uh, because it doesn't do well on personal freedom. But economic freedom, it does well, and that attracts people and businesses. Uh, But if you think about regions, like New Hampshire does a lot better than Massachusetts. Indiana does a lot better than Illinois. Uh, Nevada and Arizona doing a lot better than California. And so you're seeing that that work. And that's one of the great things about our federal system is that we can vote with our feet. And you don't necessarily have to pay uh, a heavy price to do that um, because we have a pretty good freedom of lawful travel regime in this country. Yeah, so far. (laughs) (laughs) I was giving a talk the other day and uh, people were shocked when I told them... um, what age group is is moving from New York to Florida? So, uh, so Florida is, is the is the number one state for people moving out of New York, right? And New York is a state that's losing the most people to the rest of the country, and it's the least free state. Um, so it used to be that New Yorkers were moving mo- mostly to Connecticut, and New Jersey. Now it's Florida. Why are they moving to Florida? Um, well, one hint of this is to look at the uh, seven year age groups at the census buckets the population in and see which is the biggest group moving from New York to Florida. And believe it or not, it's 18 to 25-year-olds. That is the group that is most um, preeminent in New York to Florida movers. So this is not retirees moving for the warm weather. This is young people looking for economic opportunity. I'm guessing a shift from what it used to be, like you would, you right. would move to Florida to protect your, your savings as you were retiring. But now this is people making um, a, a life choice as opposed to a retirement choice. That's right. And I think, you know, if you've ever been to upstate New York, you know, that's in long term economic depression. So if you're a young person growing up there, you need to go where the jobs are. Uh, if you're in downstate New York, if you're in New York City, the cost of living is so high yeah. that if you're a young person, you need to go elsewhere to kind of make your way in the world. 
At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24-7, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today, just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love Liberty and look cool. When I look at the top 10, I, I immediately notice two things, at least the, the top six. I think those are all states controlled by Republican governors right now, even even Nevada, which flipped um, recently. Yeah, they tend to be more red states, but also, you know, in the case of New Hampshire and Nevada, they're purple in a way, right? Yeah. So the top five, it's it's New Hampshire and then Florida, and then after that, South Dakota, Nevada, and Arizona. So that's our top five. And then you compare that to the bottom five, where you're talking about New York, which is number 50 by far. It's not even close to number 49, which is Hawaii. And then you have California, New Jersey, and Oregon at the bottom. Uh, yeah, you see a, a, a partisan split there. But uh, the story isn't so simple because there are some red states that aren't doing very well, especially because of personal freedom. States that combine for, uh, you know, the, I think that respect for, um, you know, for freedom uh, across the board. Like a state like New Hampshire is a live free or die state, right? Mm -hmm. It's a place where people want to be left alone. It's fiscally prudent because of that old kind of thrifty Yankee spirit that I love so much and that Colonel Harwood, the guy who founded AIR, loved so much. Uh, but it also has that healthy respect for like, let's just let people you know, do their thing as long as they're not infringing on other people's rights, which is kind of how we define freedom. That's how we operationalize our variable as the social scientists say, right? It's pe people should be allowed to dispose of their life, liberty and property as they see fit, consistent with the equal rights of others. And then we take that and we figure out what policies violate or, or uh, support that. You would, you would think, in, uh, and maybe New Hampshire is an example of this, but you would think that um, a so-called purple state. Um, the Republican-Democrat thing I don't think is a great way to measure this. It's just a proxy. You notice okay. that trend. But since you guys wait, and I don't know what the weight is in the balance between like tax policy and fiscal policy versus personal freedoms, uh, marijuana policy, uh, arrests, and uh, criminal justice, um, it seems like the purple state should kill it if they can do both of those things. Yeah, and in particular, it's going to be your purple states that are often kind of outside the, the South and some of these areas that are historically tougher on crime, like, you know, lock them up and throw away the key type of states. Our number one category in personal freedom is criminal justice. Um, and we don't punish southern states and high crime states for having high crime and having high incarceration rates just because they have high crime. We adjust incarceration rates for the crime rate. And so it's really, um, you know, punishing you if you have just really long sentences or maybe few rights for criminal defendants, right? And so you're you end up um, putting people in more people in prison for longer, even given your crime rate. And then we also look at stuff like um, victimless crimes, arrest rates, so arrests of over 18s for drug violations, liquor law violations, prostitution, gambling, um, and we have seen that. All states, even even the more um, conservative states, are declining in terms of their incarceration rates and victimless crimes arrest rates. They're they're becoming more you know liberal, if you will, or libertarian on, on criminal justice policy. Um, but because all states are moving in that direction, even a state like Texas that has done some criminal justice reform still ends up number 50 on personal freedom because it's still very restrictive on some of those policies. You know, marijuana's in there. As Texas, well. Texas, I would have to say, I'd point out that it it 
Texas should be doing so much better than it does. Yeah, I mean, and it's and really the big part another is, performer. Yeah, personal freedom is the big, big challenge there. Uh, and, and people might say, well, you're just looking at criminal justice policy. People could disagree about the right mi- mix of that. But it's not just that. I mean, think about te- Texas is lagging when it comes to educational reform. Other states have beat them. States like Florida, for example, down New Hampshire, others. Uh, it also uh, lagged for a long time, even on gun rights. I, I used to joke with my Navy buddies in Texas when I lived there that Vermont had better gun laws than Texas. And they were like, no, no, that can't be true, <laughs> right? Because unfortunately in Texas, and I live there, I love the state. It's a great place. Uh, but there's a kind of rhetoric of, of freedom that isn't always matched when it comes to state and local policy. So you think about like local tax policy, for example, in Texas, or spending is just terrific. Mm-hmm. And they need to get a handle on that. Yeah. Um, but again, Texas does do relatively well on economic freedom. It's a right to work state, for example. You know, state taxes, tax burden isn't that onerous. Uh, and you see that one of the reasons why they're having economic growth. But it's really the personal freedom side. And again, not just the issue of crime. And again, even even kind of diehard red Republicans in Texas realize that the criminal justice issue was a was a problem for them because Rick Perry, who's you know not a libertarian by any stretch, was a leader in this. Mm-hmm. The Texas Public Policy Foundation uh, was a leader in that in the right on crime approach. And, you know, I think they made some strides. In some strides. ways, they, I, they didn't start the fight, but they sure put it on the map. Absolutely. Um, I mean, you got to give credit to TPPF and yeah. right on crime. The, and, and uh, you know, I think that that's been very helpful. Again, criminal justice reform, I think, is facing some barriers right now. Um, and in some cases, uh, I think that the criminal justice reform effort became a pretty broad tent, which is why it was successful. Mm-hmm. But some of, the, some of the margins of that tent may... Uh, uh, may not have had the same concern about public safety that yeah. ac- actually is why. I mean, like, unless you're an anarcho-capitalist, and even if you are an anarcho-capitalist, you want to have some type of body, whether private security or in the case of people like me, you want to have public security that is keeping us safe in terms of our private squish. property. Yeah, squish. Squ- yeah, squish. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you know, we've done, we've done a lot of work on restorative justice and, and a, a very important documentary that became sort of a, a working toolkit for places that wanted to rein in um, mass incarceration. But what's happened is that the phrase itself has been hijacked. And, right. and restorative justice is is a very arduous process by which um, uh, people that commit a crime, make a mistake, have a way to make it right. And a lot of people won't choose it because it's too hard to right. actually look your victim in the face and mm-hmm. say, I screwed up. But what's happened, and I think I'll pick on the state of Oregon, which, by the way, is number what forty-six. I yeah, think. forty-six. It's fallen the, a lot. They've mm. replaced, and a lot of a lot of your worst states have replaced um, this, or, or never actually implemented this process. They've mm-hmm. instead they have catch and release, which is right. not restorative right. justice at all. Right. No. And it does it. It actually makes things worse. So I, I think I think we have to be clear that that real criminal justice reform and real restorative yeah. justice are not soft on crime. They're no. just acknowledging yeah. the fact that um, these, are, these are people that will be part of our society, and, and how, do we, how do we do this in a way that, mm. that makes both fiscal yeah. and, and, and legal sense? And if yeah. you're going to have government, the primary job of government should be to protect private property. I mean, crazy idea like that, right? Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, you know, so I think, like, the defund the police movement, I, I think... 
uh, I think that harmed the criminal justice efforts. I mean, I don't have data on on, on if that's actually harmed it, but it seems empirically I'm that sure there's it has. been rhetorically, some rhetor- yeah, devastating. And yeah. um, and well, I again, well, we should still fight for it. I mean, if it's right yeah. to do, it's right to do, and and that means like excessive sentencing is something we should work on. It doesn't mean no sentencing, like you said, right? But excessive sentencing, or or something like the militarization of policing, which is still a, a real challenge. Uh, civil asset forfeiture problems, right? That goes back to that protection of private property, right? Government shouldn't be able to take your property uh, without engaging in the appropriate due process. What's the go, go ahead? Oh, and and just by the same token, I don't know. Maybe this is more controversial at this table, but it's been disappointing to see drug legalization kind of tainted now by those states and cities that have allowed public drug consumption, which you know people have fears about. Like, I don't want to be walking with my kid down the street past a guy who's shooting up, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, you can have you can allow people to do things in the privacy of their own homes or you know consenting um, private property indoors without having that kind of open air drug consumption that I think is causing a backlash on that. Thank you for joining me today on Kibbe on Liberty and for being part of our fiercely independent audience. Every week, my organization, Free the People, partners with Blaze TV to bring you this show. My guests bring smart perspectives on everything from current events to timeless philosophical debates. If you like what you hear, go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and support Kibbe on Liberty so we can continue to produce these honest conversations with interesting people. Now, let's get back to it. Yeah, well, we like um, libertarians sometimes lean into these false caricatures because I I think freedom and responsibility go together. Mm -hmm. And if if you're trusting people to be responsible with drugs, and I I think we should legalize everything. Right. And I have very much looked at Portugal as a model by which you could do that, but that that doesn't mean that we don't hold bad behavior and and, right. and publicly destructive behavior accountable. Yeah. It's it's quite the opposite. If you mm-hmm. if you decriminalize everything, um, we can then take care, um, either with a carrot or a stick, people that mm-hmm. are in trouble. Yeah, yeah, and we need to see an establishment of norms to provide. I think the kind of appropriate boundaries, if you will, so that we don't get a backlash that leads away from, that leads to more coercion. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, again, maybe it's just early and we're going to see the evolution of that. Yeah. I mean, I think when it came to vaping, for example, that uh, lots of places said, you know, you know, look, you can do it, but no indoor use, right? Mm-hmm. And that's so the establishment of a norm without government's ha- without government having to say that a lot of businesses would do that on the, on its own. And I think that you could see some development of norms here. The problem is, is just like with like, you know, people on cell phones, on airplanes, or you know, in public spaces, the norm development isn't hap- doesn't happen fast enough for most of us, <laughs> right. right? And uh, you know, so how do you do that? And especially given that. You know, we live in a world in which uh, on some issues there people are massively judgy. And in other issues, it's like, don't judge me, man. Uh, you know, and so uh, a friend of mine said you should. We're, we're both at the same time. Yeah, right? both <laughs> at the same time. Yeah, like yeah. Uh, like the me- most massive cigarette bans on any type of uh, consumption of cigarettes at the same time is a very different attitude towards another way of doing it. So it's very weird. But again, I mean, I think our study... Um, is very definitely rooted in a kind of classical liberal worldview, libertarian mm-hmm. worldview, if you will. Uh, but I think that that conservatives and liberals can see some value in it as well. So it's not just for libertarians. I mean, uh, again, we have a range of issues that people could look at, and they could even look at it and say, 
I want to weight these differently than you do. Uh, so, for example, um, you know, gun rights and education policy might look pretty conservative to many people. Um, whereas the incarceration rates, drug arrests, those mm -hmm. things, some people might say are more liberal. Again, we think that it's a unified whole. Mm -hmm. I mean, we agree with Milton Friedman that freedom is a, is a whole. Economic freedom is important. You have to be able to own the means of production. You have to be able to own your own labor. Uh, onerous taxation is not just a restriction in some ways on your economic freedom. It's also a restriction on your personal freedom. Like, how can you live your life project as you see fit without being able to, to generate the means to do so? Um, uh, you know, and uh, and so again, like I think that uh, one of the one of the things we are both proud of in this study is that we're not cherry picking policies. We're looking at 230 of them, and that means there's a little bit of something for everyone. Uh, people will nitpick, but again, no single policy is such a big part of it that that's driving it. I mean, even tax policy, right? The tax burden is a high percentage, but it's not 40 percent of the index. Yeah. So, so Jason, what's the um on economic issues, you would immediately go to tax policy and say this this, mm -hmm. this is going to drive the results. But what are the things that we don't think about as much that really determine economic freedom in a state? Yeah. So our second most important economic freedom category is land use and energy freedom. And uh, I think this is getting its due now, finally, in the public conversation with all the, the worry about housing prices. I mean, certainly it's huge in New England. I went down to Tennessee this week. It's huge in Tennessee. Everyone all over the country is talking about house prices and rents and how they've gone up in the last few years. And a lot of that's due to land use regulation, especially local zoning regulations that are restrictive that prevent landowners from building homes. Uh, that reduces the supply of housing. And so in a, a growing society where people need homes, um, you know, it's just pushing up the price. Uh, so that ends up being a, a very big uh, part of the index. I think it's 11%. Energy, we, we, we throw in there as well uh, because it's another cost of living driver. You know, a lot of states are mandating that utilities buy renewable energy, no matter what it costs, uh, and pass those costs on to electric consumers. We think that's kind of a bad way to deal with, you know, air pollution or whatever negative externalities you want to talk about. Uh, forcing these utilities to buy renewable energy, it drives up the cost of electricity. And that, that hurts your manufacturing sector, too, because they end up having to use a lot of power to make stuff. Total, total tangent. <clears throat> but uh, um, you guys are probably aware of the fact that this, these renewable mandates in Hawaii very much diverted resources away from from fire pre prevention <laughs> one of the one of the key drivers of, of many many government failures drove the the tragedy right. in Maui which apparently we don't talk about that much anymore but uh, renewable mandates was certainly one of them yeah yeah that was that was definitely a tragedy I mean I've I've, I've been there so just to, to see the pictures of that place yeah. burned down is terrible. but the, like there's there's a lot of uh, uh, random things and I, I recall a couple of years ago I was involved in, in exploring energy policies in Nevada. And there's, there's a lot of uh, centralization driven by government-controlled, even government-run utilities. And, and the push should be for uh, actual energy freedom, where mm -hmm. if, yeah. you, if you generate renewables, um, a lot of states you're not allowed to actually own that energy. You have to right. sell it back to the monopolist, yeah. and then they charge you double for it. It's really disgusting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're moving toward a future in which energy can be distributed and decentralized, and we don't need these big monopoly networks anymore. You know, we have home-based solar. 
Um, people are talking about modular nuclear right around the corner. Um, so there, there are going to be a lot of options out there, and we need to think about how we uh, foster choice and competition in, in, in energy. Yeah, and, and I, again, an important finding that we have in the study that supports every economist since Adam Smith that's worth their salt, right, is that the economic freedom correlates greatly with per capita income growth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's an important thing, uh, particularly uh, for uh, att attracting people uh, in terms of the out-migration, in-migration question, but also in terms of just our general flourishing. Yeah. And uh, the more regulation you have, the more uh, the greater the tax burden, you know, that's going to stymie people's ability to, to grow the economy. And one of the great things about our system is we have federalism, in which uh, states have a lot of power, but there are ways in which federalism can be a problem because not only do you have the federal level as a, as a potential regulatory burden on people, but then you also have states. And so you can get a double whammy there. And the good thing, at least, again, is as long as we have the freedom to vote with our feet, that's going to put a constraint on governments because they lose tax dollars. And, uh, and that's one of the reasons why, uh, in our study, the greater decentralization you have even within a state is important because more decentralization within a state means more ability to even vote with your feet within a state or within a region. Yeah. Uh, and that puts pressure on governments. And again, government is not going to do the right thing on its own. Uh, the incentives matter. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, again, there is, I mean, I, I, I studied uh, public policy with one professor. You'd think that she believed that everything was just like yeah. a bunch of like well-meaning, well-intentioned technocrats trying to make things right. It's not uh, to say that all you know bureaucrats are bad that people. Is right? the myth, but, <laughs> that is the myth of public policy. Yeah. yeah. But again, let, let's just assume that not all of them are so well-intentioned, uh, even if some of them or even, even most of them were. Uh, it's important to have those constraints so that they almost have to be forced to do the right thing. And again, that's why... Um, you know, there's there are problems like Hawaii, for example, has a single school district. That means, yeah, yeah, for the entire state. That means you don't have that type of competition that you can get in mm -hmm. other places. And so, uh, like in New Hampshire, there are some places that uh, tuition out their students uh, to private schools, and uh, that's an advantage for them. Other places, they're going to spend more or less. And one of the dangers in a place like New Hampshire is that this will become uh, a, only a state level issue. Uh, with funding at the state level, and so there could be less competition even below the state, and that's very dangerous. We should resist that, uh, and that, and and again, there's also that check because uh, in a smaller community, uh, not only can you vote with your feet, but you can use voice, um, not just exit, but voice, yeah. and uh, speak up in a way that's not. It's more likely to be heard at your local town meeting than it is, like say, in a state like California or Texas, where your chance to go to the legislature and actually be important compared to the teachers union or any other you know special interest group is going to be limited in a place like new hampshire you could actually use that voice in an effective way yeah this is this relates to my pet theory of california which <laughs> is that california gets away with a lot because it's so big just geographically even and uh, you know it's got a nice climate best climate on earth some people say not me but some people <laughs> And you know, there's there's you, less you competition. You prefer ten degrees I, in I New prefer, Hampshire. I, yeah. I like to, I like to I like the seasons. I like to ski, you know, in the winter, and I like to garden in the summer. <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's let's talk about. Um, well, since you mentioned California, um, there's this great um, word that became a Red Hot Chili Peppers song called Californication. <laughs> yeah, and it originally referred to 
those damn Californians migrating into Oregon and screwing everything up. And one of one of the great concerns, um, mostly amongst Republicans, is that with people fleeing blue states, they're going to bring the stupid with them mm-hmm. and and Californicate <laughs> Florida. That's right. Or or Massachusetts Massachusettsification. Yeah, Massachusettsification. But that doesn't yeah. seem to be happening. Right. Like the, exactly. the flood of New Yorkers moving to Florida has actually, you know, if anything, moved the state a little bit more red. Um, I mean, so much of it depends on who's moving, right? Uh, yeah. You know, what is the what are the kind of political ideology or political culture that people have when they go? And I think for some of the early worries, it was a place like Montana, where the people going there were actually kind of like hippie lefty types yeah. uh, or rich lefties, right, that could have a second home there. I mean, this happened to Burlington. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Vermont, Vermont used to Vermont be a very conservative to, place. Yeah. To the Bernie but if you're a tax right. refugee from Massachusetts <laughs> moving to New Hampshire or you're an upstate New Yorker looking for something different than what you're getting from Albany and moving to Florida, that's a different type of person. And again, that's why migration in general, both international and within the U.S., is potentially fraught because unlike goods and services, people have ideas that they bring with them. And so you can imagine that, uh, you know, if you have a whole slew of folks that are kind of like hate Albany, uh, want to resist what New York City is trying to do and go to New York, that could move the state actually to the right. Whereas, you know, you could see, um, you know, one of the big worries I think about a place like New Hampshire is, are the tax refugees balanced by the kind of people that are attracted to Vermont, but maybe they're uh, uh, you know priced out of that market? Yeah, or they're just looking for jobs, right? So they're coming from all over the country for jobs, but they don't necessarily know what's supporting that that economic dynamism, you know. And which is why you got to educate people about, hey, this is why the state is doing well. And so, yeah. like, like the in a sense, like a. A kind of state level civic religion isn't a bad thing. I know like a lot of libertarians get squeamish about that. But again, if you're going to have public schools like look, a state like New Hampshire or Texas should have part of the curriculum where they're talking about like why we've been successful. Yeah. <laughs> why live free or die on the license plate is actually not bad propaganda. It's good because it helps, I think, inscribe in people a certain kind of attitude. And and again, the little things matter. And I, and I think, again, the, the license plate is a, is a symbol of that in New Hampshire. So, uh, yes or no, do we need to build a wall between California and America? <laughs> you're, saying, yeah. you're saying not necessarily. Not necessarily. I think there are, there are you know, you can promote this, this civic religion as a way of assimilating, right, the Californians to the, the culture they get into. And, you know, political scientists have actually found this. They find, um, I think there was a study, if I remember correctly, it was on... on um, on the the research triangle area in North Carolina, and they found that places where um, people moved from you know liberal areas of the North did become a little bit more liberal, but then they found that those individuals themselves became more conservative. So there's some adaptation to your new environment as well that that's happening. So on balance, as freer states are attracting people from less free states, that's making the country as a whole, more pro-freedom, but there is still the, the worry that if you get a real flood then of, of uh, you know, incomers who don't share the culture, they, they really could change the culture. And the reason why we know this, I, I think that we can guess this is true, is because the, the non-freedom-oriented people in a place like New Hampshire are really angry at, at the Free State Project because they think they're bringing in people that are going to pollute the place. Whereas I think most uh, what are called pre-staters, people who are actually born there but love liberty, 
uh, are excited by it because yeah. they're actually deepening that tradition. Uh, but I do think it's important. I mean, and, and again, just not to focus too much on New Hampshire, but it is our number one state in the index. Is one of the ways that the civic religion, if you will, works is they t a lot of people talk about the New Hampshire advantage. And by mm -hmm. keep talking about that, it encourages people to think like, yeah, why are we doing better than Massachusetts and Maine and Vermont? It's right. not just because, you know, uh, hey, we have great, great tourist industry or something like that. There's something about the policy regime that matters. So you've got to keep talking about it. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, this is one reason my pet theory of Massachusetts. Massachusetts, <laughs> I think, is number 26 in our latest index. So it's right in the middle, which is a lot better than it's you might better expect. Better than you would expect. Given yeah. how deep blue it is. But the, the trouble is that Massachusetts' economy is so tied to New Hampshire's. If Massachusetts went crazy, like, like New York or California, it would drive so much business just over the border. And so they, they cannot get away with those sorts of Back to competitive federalism, policies. right? That's right, yeah. <laughs> if you've made it this far into the show, it means I must be doing something right. Kibbe on Liberty is just one of the amazing products we created for the people. We tell emotionally compelling stories and produce educational videos for the Liberty Curious. Our award-winning documentaries personalize all things liberty, independence, creativity, hard work, integrity, and perseverance. After the show, check out our work at freethepeople.org. And if you like what you see, donate to support what we do. That's freethepeople.org. Now back to the show. So I noticed that, and I want to talk about like the top five and the bottom five or, or some approximation of that, but, but I... Um, I noticed that um, South Dakota was number three, I believe, this yeah. year. And it looked like, again, my, my obsession with lockdowns. I mean, South Dakota mm -hmm. was the single one place That's right. where the governor said, we're not doing any of that stuff. Even right. Florida, which is celebrated for being um, skeptical of lockdowns. I mean, they, they did a lot of that mm -hmm. stuff early, and then DeSantis said, yeah. no, we're not going to do that anymore. Is there, is there a correlation between the freest states and the states that were skeptical of these more authoritarian measures, um, was it was it cause and effect? Um, did did the lockdowns change the trajectory of some states over the course of the last four or five years? Yeah, well, cer certainly on the first question, I would say yes. That that states that are freer in our index, uh, so they're freer on other policies, actually were not as extreme on on lockdowns and mandatory masking and things like that. So. I believe all of our top five were also in the top ten or so on uh, on Ben Powell's um, you know lockdown freedom index, and the states that were craziest were places like California arresting surfers. You know Hawaii was insane, like prohibiting visitors uh, to the state. Um, you know these were the states that uh, you know were were just more pro-regulation in general. So this is something to think about when you're thinking about where to live. You don't know what those issues are going to be down the road. You don't know what, what government might be doing. It might not be lockdowns next time. It might be something else that we can't predict. But you're going to be safer in those places that are already respectful of freedom. Yeah, because they have not just the institutions, and institutions matter a lot. We're studying institutions here. But it's also the political or policy ideology that then helps drive or support the, the right institutions. And uh, you know, if you have a, a, a more free culture, like in, in, in a place like, uh, you, could, you could say, especially on, on these types of things, a place like Texas or, or Florida, New Hampshire or South Dakota, you're going to be more resistant to that 
Uh, and even if the government doesn't want to do the right thing, the people are going to be hugely resistant to it. And there's a, you know, there's a certain limit to which you can buck the the kind of policy ideology of a state, even in New York, right? So if they impose the gas stove, uh, uh, you know, r restrictions, uh, whether here in D.C. or wherever, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of shirking, right? And that's going to depend on, uh, I think, kind of the, the libertarian-ish culture. And I like the term uh, folk libertarian to describe how a lot of Americans are. Like, mm -hmm. I think to, to say that, like, we can look at it and, and say, Americans is a libertarian country or not, I just don't think it's borne out. I mean, there's certainly big pockets of libertarianism, and you've written on this. Um, but I do think that even among uh, all but, like, the worst collectivists, there's some of that folk libertarianism in people. Yeah. They, you know, they just don't like to be told what to do. And sometimes that means they say, you know, keep your hands off my Social Security. <laughs> but uh, I think that's rare. It's more a kind of the, like... The, the, great, the great moral philosopher Neil Peart Describe this contradiction in Americans between between the the side of us that thinks through our mind and the side of us that thinks through our heart. Yeah, mm -hmm. and and I think I think Americans have do have some libertarian instincts, but they're also contradictions. Yeah. and yeah. and we discovered when they get scared, they start doing insanely unlibertarian things, <laughs> and and we have to watch for that. But so there, you're saying that was that was a ramble tangent. Um, there's my Neil poster. Yeah, we have a little shrine up here for for the most important. I loved Rush before I was a classical liberal, so, so uh, it's it's a it's a gateway <laughs> drug. <laughs> so if um, and I I've said this to some of my like a lot of people I know moved to Florida and got out of a lot of really bad places, um, and I look at it and I think, well, what happened? Florida's a purple state, and what happened? What happens if the next governor? Um, yeah. flips and you get a di very different set of policies are you guys seeing stability in these trends so if if mm -hmm. i look at your top five and choose one of those mm -hmm. states um, there's there's some confidence that that it's sustainable that's right so what we see is a relationship between a policy change and not so much partisan control um, of government but the ideology of the population and, and we measure that using partisanship and presidential elections. So we do see that as states move to the left, they tend to lose economic freedom. As, as they move to the right, they, they tend to gain economic freedom. One of the biggest examples of this is uh, West Virginia. So it used to be a deep blue state. Um, now it's a deep red state, so a, a huge transformation. And as a result of that, they've done things like right to work and um, and other labor law reforms, freedom too, educational right. freedom, you know, things that they never would have done had it been a solidly democratic state. Uh, so, um, you know, we don't want to say that Republicans are always good because there are plenty of examples where that's not the case. I mean, look at some of our bottom states on, on personal freedom, you know, tend to be tend to be deep red southern states typically. Mm -hmm. um, but we do see this relationship where um, you, what you really don't want to be is a deep blue state because then you'll, you'll lose the economic freedom and you'll also lose all the more right-coded personal freedoms. So, um, and just, just so that people know, the t top five, can you guys rattle these off just so they know what we're talking about? Yeah, New Hampshire, Florida, South Dakota, Nevada, and Arizona. And uh, Tennessee's number six. They they uh, they were a little upset to have missed the top five. And Tennessee's been <laughs> been pretty good 
as long as you guys have been doing this. Is that right? That's right. Um, all of these have been pretty good, although uh, it's really remarkable how Arizona and Florida especially have improved over the last, I want to say, 13 years. Really, it's since that 2010 election. It was kind of a wave election. It just flipped a lot of state governments. And uh, in Florida, especially under, it looks like the Rick Scott administration, you know, just kind of looking at the data, mm-hmm. um, that seems a time when Florida made a lot of reforms, um, not just on school choice, but even economic things like reforming insurance regulation and, you know, reducing taxes. Um, and then Arizona as well has been a, uh, really at the forefront of deregulation on things like occupational licensing, very much at the, at the forefront on school choice. Um, so it's, it's been really remarkable to see how those states have improved. You know, we see, for instance, South Dakota used to be our number one back in like 2006 for a, for a few years. Um, it's since been passed and it's now number three, but that's not because it's declined in freedom. It's just that other states have increased faster. And we shouldn't forget some states that you wouldn't characterize as red, per se, that have been gainers in terms of freedom over the last 22 years. Uh, so states like New Mexico and Wisconsin. And again, Wisconsin has, has, uh, is not exactly deep red, although it did have Governor Walker, and there were certainly positive improvements uh, under his tenure. But New Mexico improved. Now they're also yeah. starting from a pretty low spot. Um, but again, West Virginia is another one. So there are changes. The other thing, too, is that at the state level, unlike at the federal level, in many ways, you've seen an increase in, in overall freedom over the last what decade, I think, in, mm-hmm. in terms of our data. Um, so it, if I remember correctly, it kind of looks like a check mark. There was a decline in the early, in the 2000s that's and right. then ticked up over the last decade. Uh, and that's a good thing if you care about freedom. So we need, now we need to reform uh, this neck of the woods, right? Yeah. <laughs> now, importantly, we only see that that uptick over the last you know 12 years or so when we exclude federalized policies, right? Particularly health insurance regulation. Right? So that's a but again, that's, that's a, a Washington problem. That's a Washington problem. <laughs> but it's very interesting that it supports our ideas about federalism. In that it tends to be the case that when um, the Supreme Court overturns state laws, that tends to increase freedom in our data set. And when Congress does it, it decreases freedom a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Congress is usually yeah, taking we, away. we can all agree that Congress yeah. sucks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I, I do. I want to take a little shot at some of our NatCon or post-liberal friends here. All right. Um, you know, I'll, there's a lot of talk at the national level about industrial policy, tariffs, pro, you know, general protectionism. Uh, but one of the things that you, you need to remember is that, yeah, sure, the kind of China shock is some percentage of the decline of American manufacturing in terms of maybe not the output, but in terms of jobs. But technology is a huge driver and differences in regulatory policy. So, you know, Jason was just in Tennessee. You know, Tennessee is a huge manufacturing engine. Um, so you, you mentioned the wall between California. Uh, I would joke with some of my NatCon friends saying, like, if you want to get the Main Street back in Michigan, you need to draw, you know, have a wall between you and Indiana because Indiana was a regional Midwest uh, beacon of regulatory freedom. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Kansas is our number one state for regulatory policy. Uh, these are states that are doing better relative to others. So, again, like you joke, you know, obviously we don't want a wall between Indiana and Illinois and Michigan. But Illinois and Michigan were suffering because Indiana and other places like Tennessee and others were doing better, not just on right to work, but but uh, across the board. Um, and, uh, you know, I think too often people want to blame free trade for why some particular region might be doing poorly. And it's not to say that there is aren't issues related to globalization, but Policy regimes matter, too, and that's one of the success stories of Tennessee. 
That's an interesting argument because when you were talking about Wisconsin, I was thinking about I, I, I drive from Illinois to Wisconsin quite a bit, mm. and I smile every time I cross the border and I see all of this um, business development right across the border. Yeah. And, and this, yeah. this, this started um, quite a bit with, with Governor Walker, but it's, it's mm. continued in large part, maybe not because Wisconsin is great, but because Illinois is just a, a right. hellhole yeah. for running a business. Yeah. Regional, yeah. I mean, being the uh, the uh, the kind of tallest uh, person in the in the Wizard of Oz yeah. is, is a big deal, even if you're not tall. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, that's one of the advantages New Hampshire has, but it also used to be an advantage that Connecticut and New Jersey had relative to New York. And again, places like New Jersey have really slipped, and that means that a place like Florida is more attractive uh, than just going next door. And Connecticut has lost some of that advantage, too, economically. Certainly Indiana, Illinois, California, Arizona, Nevada. So that regional competition, because, again, it's a big deal even for Americans who are relatively highly mobile to move all the way across the country. But how big a deal is it to move from Palm Springs to, to uh, uh, you know, Las Vegas? Yeah. Not as much. Um, and you certainly see that again in New England, where you know you can cross three boundaries in 20 minutes. Let's there. talk about the states where, if you're watching this show, you need to get out now. Yeah, <laughs> and we've already talked New about New, is New York is New yeah. York New York is is number 50. Is New York's right? number 50. Although you know um, Hawaii is starting to close the gap. Like Hawaii has just cratered in the last few years, and uh, you know there was a there was a brief moment when it looked as if the governor was going to. Uh, do I think someone called it Yimby Martial Law? <laughs> oh, Basically, by executive decree, suspend yeah. you know all a whole huge swath of land use regulations, which are a big problem in, in Hawaii, and and that's caused an, an immense acute housing crisis there. Um, but then he kind of backed down. So, <laughs> so yeah, the the political constraints there are just huge. Um, so that's that's a state where you know if you wanna if you wanna live in in paradise, so to speak, you're gonna you're gonna pay a hefty price. Um, you know, Oregon has gone down a lot. Some of that has been adopting rent statewide rent caps. You know, that's a policy that uh, economists unanimously oppose as as devastating to, you know, yeah, something New York has. Land, yeah, to, to landlords and tenants alike. I mean, New York's rent control, the research shows that it increases rents. <laughs> Why? It, because it screws it, working folks. Yeah, it, it just. Oh, but it how is it for quality of housing? Yeah. <laughs> not so good. Right, right. right. So, um, so you know, dumb policies like this are are making a comeback these days. I mean, I thought we'd we'd gone past that, but we're we're having to to relearn some of these lessons. Yeah, all even over Massachusetts again. got rid of rent control. What about twenty five years ago? Yeah, back, I think it was like late eighties, early nineties. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, but again, uh, that's why you always have to be vigilant about liberty. So New York, Hawaii, Oregon, <laughs> yeah, California, California is very bad. There. You know, California. You know, it's interesting because all these uh, progressive types are writing these California's back pieces in the in the 2010s. You know, and right. and California did see some good growth in the 2010s. Um, you know, and it has certainly some of the wealthiest counties in America or, or in in the Silicon Valley area. Um, but you have to counterpose against that. The, the first decade of the 21st century, California had by far the worst economic performance of any state. Um, and so when you look over the last you know, 22 years, California has been you know, well below average in terms of economic performance. And what's interesting is we actually show that their economic freedom improved uh, in 2008, 2009, 2010, right before their economic performance improved. 
So that's you know shocking that, that Smith maybe, is right, right? <laughs> yeah, that maybe yeah. uh, you know California, despite some symbolic tax increases and things, they mostly dealt with a great recession by cutting spending and getting their debt under control. And, you know, um, kudos to them; they they got a little bit of a dead cat bounce out of that in the 2010s. And, and again, the voting with your feet is a good indicator. It's a reveal preference, and it's it's. I mean, again, it's not my cup of tea, but it's paradise to a lot of people, right? San Diego is kind of hard to beat the weather there. Uh, and the whole state has lots of virtues, right? You can ski and surf the same day in, in a place like California if you can bear the traffic, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, and yet you have out-migration. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you could kind of understand why some people would want to flee New York, although, again, New York has New York City, which you think would be a, a kind of a, a driver of population growth. The one thing we, sh we also like to kind of talk about to make sure people are clear here is that we aren't talking, though, about, like, New York is... Burma, or it's uh, you know Zimbabwe, yeah. or it's uh, Ukraine, or or <laughs> Russia, right? You know, New York is is yeah. still yeah. a relatively free place. Let's be careful here, and that's one of the reasons why, if you look at just like absolute population growth, look, there have you know, if you're from Burma, you might want to go to New York City. It looks a lot really free compared to that, um, and so you, you know, again, we have to. That's why we're looking at. Um, uh, in migration and out migration, not looking at like, how are we attracting from abroad? Yeah. But that being said, like, look, they should perform better. I mean, th this yeah. is a place that is living off a lot of capital that was created by a really free country. I and mean, even, yeah. Think about Milton Friedman's New York City, right? Or his parents, right? His, you know, his parents worked in sweatshops there, uh, and then they moved out to New Jersey. Uh, you know, this was an economic beacon then compared to what it is now. Yeah, and even with all that international migration, New York State has lost population relative to the U.S. as a whole every single year since 1953. <laughs> it's a that, remarkable. It's <laughs> mind-boggling. Yeah. Um, so meanwhile, people are flooding to South Dakota. You know, is it because of the climate? <laughs> no, uh, it's not even because of the pretty mountains. I mean, there are a few out, out west, but the, the growth is really concentrated in the eastern part of the state, which is, you know, flat prairie. <laughs> why, are, why, why is uh, South Dakota? Or, yeah, or think know, the, about Kansas. Like, it's yeah. it really good on regulatory policy. That's, mm -hmm. it's, it, that's the Kansas advantage. Right. It's, you can tell that it's starting to hurt because I don't know if he's still doing it, but uh, Governor Newsom was running ads in Florida, and sure of this, part of this is surely the anticipated politics of the future, yeah, mm -hmm. but running ads in Florida, reminding former Californians how awesome it was, <laughs> <laughs> even though it's, it's too late, like right. they're not coming back. Yeah. Um, but there does seem to be sort of this death spiral, like once, once you get bad, it's mm -hmm. hard to recover, I suppose until the point where it's so bad that, that you know, at some point you're Eastern Europe after the Soviet Union fell, and, mm -hmm. and you, you embrace uh, Milton Friedman's entire free to choose, <laughs> as happened in. in I mean, uh, whatever that country was. In a way, you like to see these feedback mechanisms, right? It's a con potential constraint. It's a lesson. On the other hand, like this has always been my problem with the kind of like the Randian, you know, future, which is everything has to crash first. <laughs> And there's a lot of ruin on the way down. Right. I, mm -hmm. I don't want to live in the late empire, for example, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, it could be worse than other places, but again, like you don't want to have to see that. And you know, look, uh, uh, whether it's New Zealand or Thatcherite uh, Britain, you do have examples where states haven't had to hit rock bottom before they were able to, to do some reforms. Now, the question is, is do they reform enough or does it kind of get good enough to be steady state, not so bad, not so good? 
and uh, you know you'd like to see states, you know, try to do more than uh, modest reforms when they are get, getting you know on that decline. Um, you know, but some of it has to be, you know, it's the Mises human action model. You have to have a sense of unease. And I think that's the problem in education policy until COVID, right? Which is a lot of people just like they love their congressmen but hate Congress. They they love their local public school, not knowing maybe how bad it was actually doing. And then they were exposed to it on Zoom. They're like, oh, my goodness, what the heck's going yeah. on here? <laughs> and then you've seen policy entrepreneurs take advantage of that sentiment. And so there has to be like, I, I think for for. Uh, people like us in our space, we have to raise the alarm about this is not good. You're losing people. You're losing economic growth. You might think you love your your legislature or your your home state. It's not doing well. Let's shine a, a beacon on that. Um, and hopefully they can reform and policy entrepreneurs like we've talked to a lot of state legislators, legislative staff over the years, and they ask us, how can we do better? And again, like we don't think freedom in the 50 states on its own is going to change the world dramatically, but it's part of that ecosystem of shining lights on problems, giving tools to people. And th and this is a tool that they can say, okay, like tell us how we can improve on regulatory policy. Or I wasn't aware of how bad we were getting relative to other states. Or even like when you shine a light on, on Texas's, you know, bad gun policies compared to Vermont, you can kind of name and shame like, Vermont, yeah. you know, pink as a baby's ass, right? Like, yeah. how, how could they have better gun policies? Now, again, <laughs> Vermont has slid on gun policy uh, freedom. But, again, yeah. shining that light, especially in regions like Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana don't want to be really the, the worst in the region. Mm -hmm. Shine that light. Yeah. So you, you mentioned this, and this will be the, the last question. Um, the I'm curious about education policy, and I would assume, like, because we watch this dynamic where parents um, – um, in lockdowns and remote learning, they, they had to actually look at the curriculum for the first time. And they had to see firsthand that um, even the teachers that they thought were taking care of their kids mm -hmm. were captured by this union that clearly cared more about it than mm -hmm. children. So I would assume some people migrated. They're like, I'm, yeah. I'm leaving this state because my child cannot thrive here. But Others um, came up with with um, uh, lots of education alternatives outside mm -hmm. the system. Others went to the state capitol and forced. There's a lot of uh, really good school choice reform now. Who's the best? Like, what's who are the best states? And and were they always that way, or is this something that again was was forced by parents waking up? I mean, Arizona and Florida have always been sort of the leaders on educational choice. Um, and that's really still the case. I mean, Arizona was the first state to adopt universal ESAs. And it's really cool to see policymakers pushing the frontiers of what's out there, you know, because this is a policy that didn't exist until a, a couple of years ago. And now we can include that in our study and, and, and credit these states for, uh, for advancing freedom on these fronts. You know, one of the other issues that we look at is uh, private and homeschool regulations. And so... Um, you know, some some states do okay on school choice, but still have a lot of those regulations, and so that's one of the things in our in our study we highlight that and we kind of uh, advocate let's let's remove some of these restrictions. Like, why do private school teachers need to be licensed by the state? Why should they follow the same procedures that a public school teacher follows? I mean. You know, we know that education schools are not, are not teaching a lot, you know, in terms of actual uh, ability to teach, um, right? 
And uh, and so why why should we require a, a, an education degree or a, an MA or whatever? Um, I mean, yeah, I think we would have difficulty <clears throat> as long running political scientists getting mm-hmm. a job teaching political so- social studies. Yeah, we'd have to places. jump through a lot of hoops yeah. to, to get to get licensed to teach K twelve. Well, you got you got to protect the children. <laughs> That's right. You know? I, I had a I had a I had a buddy um, here in D.C. who and this was quite a while ago, maybe ten years ago. He wanted to take a break from from politics, and he had a law degree, and he had a master's in something else. He did not have a PhD, but he was not qualified to teach in D.C. schools. Wow! And yeah. that obviously had nothing to do with his qualifications. Um, so it's a, it's a real thing. It's like these unions don't want quality competition or something. I well, that's know. why Right to Work is in this study. And when we were up in New Hampshire for the launch with Governor Sununu, they asked us, you know, what can we do to even become even better? And I think uh, the governor and you both said yeah, Right to Work time. at the same time. <laughs> I, I, said, I said greater educational choice yeah. um, because I think that's important for the future of liberty uh, in so many ways is what yeah. we do you know, when it comes to children. Yeah. Uh, New Hampshire's done a fair amount of that, but New Hampshire's a state where there's some of, the, some of these regulations on private schools that probably need to be yeah. rolled back. But so. Right to Work, that's a, that, that would be, I mean, again, uh, there are some states that could could really use it. It would help them jump in the rankings, especially if they're already doing well, like New Hampshire. Okay, lightning round. Let's uh, let's talk about the Free State Project, AIER, and mm-hmm. where people get the book. Yeah, Free State Project. And it's, you're you're the founder, right? Is that that's right? I started it um, back in in graduate school um, twenty years ago, roughly, and uh, we got together to find a state where libertarians, classical liberals, people who advocate strictly limited government and individual liberty could move and get active and create a culture of liberty and and build on a pre-existing culture of liberty. And we ended up choosing New Hampshire. And since then, thousands of people have moved to New Hampshire. They've gotten elected. They've passed legislation. I think it's a big reason why New Hampshire's uh, taken back its number one crown in this index. Um, And so it's, it's been really cool to observe that. I myself moved 10 years ago. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a really neat community. You can find many different libertarian subcultures there and plug into whatever is more of your interest. Not everyone works on politics and policy. Some work on education or um, kind of like agorism, you know, free market uh, types just of things. living freely. Yeah, yes. just living freely and helping others live freely and creating that network. I mean, it is on the license plate, so. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you, you, have to, uh, you have to come and visit. I mean, you, you come to, to Porkfest all the time, but yeah. for your listeners out there, um, you know, porkfest.com, uh, and you can visit our website at fsp.org. We do a lot of shows more. from Porkfest, and, and every year when I go back, um, people come up and say, I came here because I saw the show and it looked cool. That's it, it really is sort of, uh, as someone that, I, I claim to be the intellectual bastard of Ayn Rand and Jerry Garcia. Pork, pork Fest is my home. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You'll find that. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, AIER. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we're, uh, I think, a, a, a rising institution in the classical liberal world. Uh, you know, I want AIER to be the premier, courageous, coherent articulator of a classical liberal vision. And I think we're getting there. We have a great staff. We focus a lot on monetary economics economics and economic freedom, and then what we call defending freedom and combating collectivism. So we're looking at the most salient challenges that are posed today by collectivists of the left and the right. So I've talked about the problem of economic nationalism, industrial policy, protectionism. We do a lot on that. ESG, wokeism. Uh, My colleague Phil Magnus, for example, does a lot on 
the, these types of issues of uh, critical race theory, cultural Marxism. Uh, Sam Gregg a lot on trade and ESG. But again, we cover the, we, we don't cover every issue area, um, uh, but we cover some of the most important ones that relate to economics and economic freedom. And uh, we do a little bit of foreign policy. I've been, been on the show before because war is the health of the state. Yeah. You're not going to have a lot of economic freedom if you're in a wartime economy. You can't monetize endless war without bad <laughs> fiat money. Yeah. Well, yeah. As, well, it, I mean, as it, it turns out, right. Yeah. These are these are interconnected. Yeah. And and our founder, Colonel Harwood, was uh, he was a colonel in the military, worked for MacArthur, uh, but he was someone who cared about the balance of power. You read his writings, and you know, not just talking about monetary policy and gold, but also talking about the balance of power being important. So I think it fits nicely those things together. And again, we're going to kill it for uh, in on behalf of freedom, but we do it from a scholarly basis. You know, we're not pundits, but we like to speak to the everyman, but we base it in good economic research. Okay, where do we get this book? Um, this is a pre-copy, but it, it's out today, right? Yeah. Uh, it it's out by the time people see this. Yes, yeah. uh, Amazon, one place to get it, uh, but they can also get a full text PDF uh, if they want to read it digitally at uh, the Cato Institute's website uh, and at freedominthe50states.org.org. Cool. This was good stuff. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video, subscribe, and also ring the bell for notifications. And if you want to know more about Free the People, go to freethepeople.org.